millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you doing today, Sadie? Doing fantastic. How are you? I am great. We are your hosts. Sadie Carpenter, as always, cult expert, cult survivor Sadie Carpenter is with me today. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen. It's been about, what, two months? Yeah, not quite two months. Since Let Us Pray, a Ministry of Scandals dropped on Investigation Discovery and HBO Max. This documentary featured several friends of ours, several people that we know, including Rachel Peach, Eric Skorzynski, who we had as guests on the show, among others. And this documentary showed the culture and systemic abuse that occurs within IFB churches. The documentary focused on the abuse network within the IFB and how pastors who abuse assistant pastors, youth workers are shuttled from church to church and specifically how that gives them the opportunity to hurt more people. We were pleased that this documentary was so focused on platforming the stories of survivors rather than trying to cast a broader net while it did show some of the larger conspiracies that the IFB is involved with, see people like David Hiles, I thought that it was excellent the way that this documentary really focused on prioritizing the experiences of survivors. 
Anyway, it's been about two months since that documentary came out, and a lot has happened within and around the IFB since that time, including responses from prominent pastors. There was a big protest event that happened towards the end of December. Yeah, the response that I'm covering is not from a prominent pastor, just from a very loud and obnoxious one. Well, is there, I mean, loud and obnoxious is how you rise to prominence in the IFB, isn't it? This this guy is nasty. I am both looking forward to and not looking forward to talking about some of the he said. So in the first segment, we're going to talk about the response from First Baptist Church of Hammond and uh, Pastor John Wilkerson. In the second segment, we have... Eric Skorzynski coming on, uh, Eric Skorzynski from the Preacher Boys podcast, who has a very interesting development uh, that we think that you guys are going to be interested in hearing. And what what are you talking about in the third segment? So I'm talking about um, the sermon from Pastor Phil Hudson. He's a pastor in Missouri. It's a church that I'm familiar with. So I have a little more of a horse in that particular race. And also, he said some really mean things about my friends, and I want to talk about it. That sounds good. Um, All right. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised, also known as the IFB. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, then there's a number of things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can join our subreddit and our Facebook group. Both of those are called Eden Exodus. The Patreon is cool because you get the episodes a couple of days early and it's also extended and uncensored and ad free. So that's a fun bonus if you want to support us in a financial way. But there's also cool non-financial ways that you can support us, like sharing the show with your friends, your family, your coworkers. We're really trying to get the word out there about everything that's going on with this church and this culture of church abuse. So that would be totally awesome if you could help us out like that. Uh, Sadie, do you want to thank the patrons? Sure thing. So our I Gave It All to Your Patrons are... Kathleen Moncrief, Melora King, Melissa Mosley, Ten Ten, and Todd Dale on behalf of his Deconstruct Arena wife, Madeline Antrim. Thank you so much to the I Gave It All to Your Patrons. Yes, thank you guys so much. I don't know where we would be without you. Um, our lives have been and changed. I'd still be in recording <laughs> in a closet is where we'd be. <laughs> our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons are Alex P., Allie Allen, Autumn of Our Discontent, Krista Walker, Dan the Transman, Dora J, Eleanor Donahue, Hannah Ross, Hannah Montana, Hoosier X Fundy, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Callen, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Hinwood, Kay Terwee, Kristen Marie, Leaving Eden's Christmas Ho Ho Ho, I love you, Morgan. Linda Morgan, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Marcia Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Melissa G, Rob the Methodist, Stephanie Johnson, Stephen Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, and Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much. 
Thank you guys so much for uh, subscribing at the Faith Promise Mission and I Gave It All tier of our Patreon. Um, Sadie, do you want to hit the TW and then we will be on our way? Sure thing. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame and fear. In most episodes, we mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid any graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story we're telling. And we do our best to give the audience a heads up before we go into detail on any of these topics or anything else that we know can be triggering. This episode contains discussion of sexual abuse in churches, some really nasty victim blaming and deflection from church leaders, and a very brief discussion of marital rape. Um, November 25th and 26th, Let Us Pray, A Ministry of Scandals was released on Investigation Discovery and HBO Max. According to Google Trends, and I just checked this last night, according to Google Trends, the release of Let Us Pray has prompted a 3,000% increase in searches related to the IFB, comparing uh, the 45 days prior to the release to the 45 days following its release. Uh, So these search topics, these IFB-related search topics, according to Google Trends, include Let Us Pray, A Ministry of Scandals, HBO, Gaylord, Michigan, Bruce Goddard, IVLP, Scandal, Trial Lawyer, Jack Hiles, David Hiles, Agape. There's also been a massive uptick in searches for IFB, Church Documentary, Householder, Paul Fox, IFB, First Baptist Church, IFB Duggars, IFB Abuse. I know that we in particular noticed a large influx of people who are joining our Facebook group and who wrote on the entrance questions that we put that you have to answer before you enter the Facebook group that they found out about our podcast after searching IFB and Google after watching Let Us Pray and more and more and more and more people we have seen on social media are speaking up about their experiences. So the vibes say that since the documentary came out, more people are paying attention and then there's actual Google Trends data to back it up, which is great. I am not <clears throat> I'm not going to give any specifics on this because this all went down in a private Facebook group and I think it's really important to respect that, but what I do feel okay saying is there were weeks and weeks where in some of the um specific Hiles Anderson or First Baptist Church of Hammond survivors groups that I'm in there was just an influx of people talking about their experiences with First Baptist Church of Hammond staff or Hiles Anderson staff. Um, And these are people that I know, a lot of people that I went to college with or my parents went to college with or people that I'm connected to within the IFB universe that adds an additional element of trust beyond the usual amount of trust that I would have in, you know, believe women, believe victims, listen to people's stories. I found out so much information about so many people, people who were my teachers in college, people who were involved in ministries that I was involved in in college. This brought up, I think, more emotions for me than the documentary even did. And we took a couple weeks before going back to talking about the documentary because it was tough for me. This was a real awakening for me. This was 
like I said, it was harder than even the documentary itself coming out and me watching that because I had to reckon with just how scary the world around me was in the IFB. I knew previously to finding out all of this new information that there were predators around in the world that I grew up in. I knew that. But finding out about a whole bunch of new ones is always disconcerting. Well, that guy was my teacher, and that guy used to let me use his printer in his office when I had a project that I was running late on. And it kind of just knocked me over the head. <laughs> and and I had to once again reckon with just how many predators there were around me all the time for the first 20 years of my life. It's almost like you're walking through an Indiana Jones dungeon, but with a blindfold on. Mm-hmm. The thing that keeps coming back to me, the thing that I keep thinking back to, I think this was a quote from Kathy from the documentary. I think it was Kathy who said this, but the quote was, it's almost like every time you speak out, you're grabbing the hand of someone who needs to come forward. That was a quote that resonated with us so much. And since the documentary has come out, so many more people have been coming forward. I've seen a lot of people on the internet talking about this docuseries, particularly people who talk about Christianity and religion. I've seen YouTube responses to it from ex-fundies saying that the doc very well exemplified their experiences. I've seen current evangelical pastors, people in ministry on YouTube praising the documentary for the way in which it demonstrates that church culture can be harmful and talking about how the kind of church culture that is created by the IFB or other fundamentalist churches like the IFB is more likely to push somebody away from Jesus than it is to bring them in, which coming from somebody who was an evangelical pastor, that is stern condemnation. Yeah. And I don't think the work of this documentary is done by any means. I think the first wave has happened and we will see. I, I don't think it'll be any time this year that we see the net effect of this documentary. Yeah, it really feels to me like things are just getting started. That's the general vibe that I have right now. I always feel like I find myself looking to history. And I said this when we originally reviewed the Let Us Pray documentary in an episode back in November. Uh, I <clears throat> never thought I would live to see something as big as what happened in 1989. And it has turned out that this is bigger than what happened in 1989. And we, we look to history and we see that the, the scandal and you know, what the fundies call the Battle of 1989 didn't end the IFB. It didn't close First Baptist Church of Hammond, but it had permanent effects on the church and on Jack Hiles' reputation and on the reputation of Hiles Anderson College. It was still happening when I went to college at Hiles Anderson in 2011, over 20 years after that. 
And I think this documentary will be the same. I One documentary alone is not going to close the church, close the college, but it will have a permanent effect on these institutions. I believe to the core of my being that this is just getting started. So on December 17th, uh, April Avila, who is one of the women, one of the survivors who was featured quite prominently in the documentary, organized a protest at First, ja- uh, First Baptist Church of Hammond. On December 13th, so the Wednesday night before this protest was set to happen, John Wilkerson, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond, gave an update to his congregation about the protest that was going to be occurring on the coming Sunday. I watched this video. This is the, um, it's about 14 minutes long. You can watch it on the, it's, it, if you're in our Facebook group, it's in the Facebook group. You can find it there. But Wilkerson gives sort of like a, it felt a very boilerplate-y response to it, and it felt like it was written by lawyers. But he reaffirms that the protesters have a right to protest and says that it is unlikely that there will be any violence or aggression from the protesters and tells the church members not to treat them unkindly. He uses the word victims to describe the people who were featured in the documentary. He rejects the idea of what I would describe as an open forum. He sort of prejudicially describes it as saying they want us to just come outside and have them yell at us and tell us all of the things that we did wrong. And he says, I don't think that's very helpful to anyone. I'm not sure if that's actually the thing that was proposed, but that's the thing that Wilkerson says was proposed and says that he rejected and that he doesn't think would be substantive. He also does not forbid any of the First Baptist Church members from going out and standing with the victims, with the survivors and the people who support them. Interestingly, he did not promise immunity to staff members who went to stand with victims. No, but that felt to me very much like it was a... You have every right to do this if you want to. There's no law that says that you can't. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I think if he was interested in anyone from the church showing support to victims, he would have phrased it differently. I think that if he wanted First Baptist Church members or First Baptist Church staff members to go out and support the victims, that he would have told them I think that some of you should go out and stand with them. Here's another quote from him. He says, Only a fool or someone who did not know the Lord would not want uh, help for the victims. And he, he goes on to say, If you know anybody who has been sexually abused, notify the police first, not the church. But if you need help in knowing who to call, you can call First Baptist Church of Hammond Security. They are advised to help you. I found this to be very interesting because throughout IFB history, we have seen people who came forward and said, I was abused. And rather than people going to the police, they decided to handle it internally. Yeah. And now people know that they can't say that from the pulpit. They know that they can't be on camera or on record saying that. And, um, 
when we get to Pastor Hudson's words, we're going to talk about the same. He said the same thing. With some caveats. I wonder. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder when a pastor says those words, what it, what do the audience hear? I think that the way that I hear these words now is very different than how I would have heard these words when we started this show out uh, three and a half years ago. I think you sort of learn to read between the lines a little bit. Here's an interesting thing. He encourages victims to reach out and says, there are many people in CPS in law enforcement right here at First Baptist Church of Hammond. That's kind of upsetting. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on and he talks about outreach and love of Christ. He says that he met with the deacons. He met with staff members. He met with risk management. He met with security and two church, and two church members who have been victims of sexual abuse and they drafted a statement. And he says, no statement will ever offer full healing to the mental, spiritual, physical, emotional harm that has been caused in 136 years of ministry by a few. Uh, he's very heavy on the by a few. And also on the 136 years of ministry. Um, while I would like to ask if there is a particular 40-ish year uh, section in that 136 years that has produced more victims than any other 40-ish year section, I wonder. Yeah, the people who are doing this, I mean, they're still alive. David Hiles is still alive. He's younger than my dad. <clears throat> yeah, and when he says 136 years, I feel that that is intended to conjure an image of something that happened 136 years ago, where victims and perpetrators would all be long gone. When that is not accurate. The other thought that I had when watching this is that he described the protest outside. He said he described it as being involved with a documentary. Right. That has to do with, he said they're involved with a documentary that has to do with a church, with our church, and has to do with some people who were hurt at our church. And he sort of describes it in a manner of, this is what you have. This is what I want you to know about it if you haven't seen it, because I'm assuming that you haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering who in First Baptist Church has seen the documentary. I believe that there are a lot of people who are one foot in and one foot out of First Baptist Church right, right now. And I think a lot of them have seen the documentary. And a lot of people who are still in and committed and good First Baptist Church of Hammond members who would not ever watch this thing, a huge number of them have children who are not anymore and have seen this. So what did he say in his actual statement? So in his actual statement, he says, number one, we grieve and have remorse for any victim of abuse. Okay, well, that's nice. Number two, we abhor the abuse in any fashion. We acknowledge the lifelong harm that abuse has caused in the lives of people who have had it happen to them. We are committed to creating a safe place for the men and women and children to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I can't speak to 13 decades of our ministry, but I can speak to this current leadership and we have taken 
every allegation seriously and will continue to report any allegations of abuse to proper authorities. It is our strong belief that the church family should be a place where people are loved and accepted and victims are supported. Oh, that's so sweet of him to say. So there are a couple things I notice about this statement. One is that there is no acknowledgement that abuse has happened there at this church in his actual number one, number two, number three, number four statement. It's, well, we don't like abuse and we know that abuse is harmful and we want to be a safe place. That does not acknowledge it has happened here and we have done X, Y, and Z to make it not happen anymore. Also, when he says he grieves and has great remorse for any victim of abuse, I would like to direct him to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Uh, godly sorrow leads to repentant, repentance. And as we all know, who were raised to be good fundies, to repent means to turn. It means to turn away from one thing and toward another. In the IFB, it's also it's often used to describe a turning away from my sin and my sinful life and turning towards Jesus for salvation. But repentance can more simply be explained as a turning away from one thing toward another thing. If your sorrow was godly, if your grief and great remorse for any victim of abuse was godly sorrow, it would lead to you turning. Repentance means making a change, turning away from a culture of abuse and a culture of cover-ups to something different. That's my sermon for today. <laughs> that was very well put. I noted the prolific use of passive voice in that statement. Mm -hmm. He never said we're the, like we're the ones that did it. He if he had said we grieve and have great sorrow and great remorse for all of the people who were abused at this church by this ministry over the entire length from Jack Hiles to Jack Scop onward into the time now. That would have really been something. Mm -hmm. But of course, he did not do that. No, because the IFB has an idolatrous need to worship pastors as if they were gods, past pastors as if they were gods, almost. As if they were a mini sort of Christ-like figure. So this statement, very boilerplate, very uh, social media notes apology ask i guess <laughs> yes uh very damage control e on december 17th which is the day that april avila the protest that she organized was set to happen um which was a sunday wilkerson gave a short about two minute statement to congregation at first baptist church of hammond and we're going to actually play the recording of that now Oh, there was a scheduled protest uh, uh, that uh, was uh, kind of highlighting our church. And uh, it's based upon a, a documentary and some folks have gotten together and wanted to bring some attention to the fact that there were people that were hurt in years gone by. 
Uh, I think it's a very small group of people that have wounded people. Most people, this church, just fantastic. But throughout 136 years, we've had some folks who haven't done the right thing. It's not always been handled probably the best. And we want to, the victims, some of them are here today. Others of them are here to support the victims. They've heard about it on, on the social media and they're here. They're stationed out this way across the street. And I'm just going to ask you, I love them. And if anyone doesn't uh, want a victim to find hope and encouragement and help, there's something wrong with you. And I've prayed for them, and I hope you prayed for them. We have no animosity in our heart toward them. Matter of fact, we have provided a parking lot across the street for them, found out they wanted to come. We provide the parking lot. We've worked with their our local authorities here, our police department, to help things to be good. But they're positioned out front. Uh, I'm going to ask if you would please be gracious, be kind. Uh, please do not engage in any kind of... Um, in any kind of combative or argumentative thing, there's just it's not it's not the time or the place, and it's not going to be helpful to the kingdom of God. But uh, I, we love them, we care about them, and anyone who is supporting them, we're fine for them to be there. We want them we want them to know that we love them and care about them, regardless of their situation. Some are true victims. Some maybe have a little bit of a different uh, a different purpose in mind. But for whatever the situation, we want to be gracious. I believe God wants us to do that. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. You're a mature, wonderful group of people. Let's make sure that we exercise wisdom in regards to how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, here and abroad. Thank you very much. We're going to read the scripture and then we'll be dismissed. Let's read. So one thing that I wanted to note about this statement is that he takes the same tack. That in 136 years, not everybody in this church did the right thing, and some of them did bad things, but doesn't go into specifics. He doesn't name names. In this church also, which implies a church member, not church staff. Right. Not people who were part of the administration, who were protected by the administration. Yes. And then shuffled somewhere else so that they could beat the case or so that they wouldn't have to take accountability for the actions that they had engaged in. Doesn't go into specifics, doesn't name names, made sure to note that First Baptist Church of Hammond had worked with the local police to, quote, provide a parking lot for them to protest. That was a line I found interesting. Is the parking lot church property? I assume it's church property. I'm not 100% sure. If it's church property, then I guess all that really entails is the police probably going to them and saying, look, they're going to be out here. The sidewalk is public property. You can't tell them that they can't be on the sidewalk. If you wanted to be jerks about it, you could probably have some people out there threatening to fight them if they set foot in the parking lot, but you can't really do that. And so I think that's kind of a spin. Yeah. Especially with regards to Wilkerson saying, we're not going to do anything to antagonize these people, and we're going to treat them with Christian love. Another line which I thought was quite interesting. Here's another quote. He says, some are true victims. Some maybe have a little bit of a different purpose in mind. But then he goes on to remind uh, First Baptist Church members not to antagonize them and to use wisdom. So By saying some are true victims, some maybe have a little bit of a different purpose, that feels to me like he's trying to strike at their credibility, strike at their motivation. But he's not trying to disparage the idea of church abuse as a whole. He's trying to 
make it out to seem like it's some rare thing that these people are making a big hoopla about that isn't actually that big a deal. And this feels really shady to me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm reminded of like when I took debate class and you know, one of the reasons why I think like a lot of formalized debate is kind of dumb is if your opponent lays out what is overwhelming evidence and presents it to you all at once. One of the things that you can do if you're trying to discredit them is go matchup hunting to use a basketball term. You can pick a point, whichever one of their points that you believe is the flimsiest and use whatever dirty tricks or logical fallacies in order to take that one piece apart. And if you're successful in doing that, then it doesn't matter what the rest of the evidence says. If they complain and say, you didn't address any of my other points, you can say, why should I? You've already proven that you're a liar because you made this point, which is wrong. And that's kind of what I see him sanctioning here. By going after their motivation and saying, some of them are true victims, but some of them, maybe they have a different purpose in mind. Yeah, and it also backhandedly discredits all of the victims a little bit. Because if he says some are true victims, some maybe aren't, then different people in the congregation will assign people in the congregation who have either seen the documentary or know the major players in it will assign their own beliefs about who is a true victim and who has different motivations in mind. So one person will decide that Wilkerson meant that April is not a true victim, but Rachel is. And then the next person is going to decide that Rachel's not a true victim, but Kathy is. And then the next person decides that Kathy's not, but someone else is. It. Do you see what I mean? It's like a chain reaction. Mm-hmm. He gives people permission to assign motivations to whoever they want to assign them to any of the documentary participants, anybody who is there protesting. And it it basically is giving people a license to discredit whomever they would like to. The other thing that I see here, and we're going to get into this a little bit more in the next segment um, when we're talking to Eric, I see this as a shot at Eric because he is the one person who is featured quite prominently in the documentary who isn't a victim the same way that April and Rachel and uh, Kathy and uh, Ruthie are, and Nanette especially. And Eric is also somebody who is a more of a public figure than I think they are, and is also somebody who is quite public about the fact that he is no longer a Christian. And I think this also sanctions any possible attacks on Eric's character and Eric's motivation to be involved with a project like this. Let's go take up the offering and let's get Eric on to see what he has to say about this and tell us his story from protest day. Fantastic. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. So speaking of Wilkerson and his non-apologies, we did get some information that friend of the pod, Eric Skorzenski, was able to actually speak to John Wilkerson about this. So we asked him to hop on for a couple of minutes to talk about that experience. Hi, Eric. Nice to have you back. Yeah, good to be here. I feel like I'm a re- recurring cast at this point. I like it. We're, we're talking a lot. You got to come on the show a few more times to beat Dinah Housefire. I was just going to say, uh, Eric, do you have any, uh, what's your drag persona? <laughs> oh, God, I've never thought about it. I'll have to get back to you on it. So just have me on next week and we'll chat. Okay? Dinah will make you one. Don't worry about it. <laughs> If you get a drag persona, then we'll have an excuse to bring you back more often. We're going to start the modest drag queen movement. We're going to do skirts, <laughs> skirts beneath the knee. You know, we're going to keep it really fashionable and modest. Okay. Oh, my God. I was at Target today, and I saw a, a below-knee-length denim skirt, and it was horrible. I'm traumatized. I'm sorry that you had to suffer through Target. I thought that Target was woke. Anyway, Eric, you uh, spoke to uh, John Wilkerson on the day. Was it on the day of the protest that you spoke to him? Yeah, it was the day of the protest. So we did the protest, which April uh, uh, Avila, which I always thought was Avila, but April Avila uh, put together. And um, she organized amazing protests. A lot of people showed out. Uh, and then afterwards we grabbed lunch right nearby. And as we were sitting at lunch, Kathy Durbin basically said, I want to talk to him. And I instantly was like, I roll. It's not worth the time. It's going to be a conversation that goes nowhere, you know, full cynical Eric mode. But she was really adamant. She just, her, her thought process was, she said, I'm going back home tomorrow. Um, this is the last chance I'll have to talk to him and he can't say the conversation didn't happen. And so with that, the two of us went up to the church and sat and waited by the office for a meeting and, uh, ended up having a, a probably 30, 40 minute conversation with Wilkerson, which, uh, which is why I'm here, which is very interesting. 
So I know that it's only me and like four other people that care about this, but is this the office in the administrative building? No, this is the office. Oh, he's back in the pastor's office. Yeah. So it was, we walked into the church and asked Boris Wilkerson and they pointed upstairs. So yeah, I was up upstairs and uh, yeah, right above the auditorium. I've drunk Dr. Pepper with Jack Scott in that office. Yeah, that's special. That was also an office where other things happen with Jack Scott. Yeah, which is why Wilkerson wasn't using it, which is why I cared enough to ask what office he's using, because he made a big deal about moving into the office in the administrative building because he didn't need the big fancy pastor's office in the main building. No, it was the big fancy pastor's office. We went to the administration uh, administrative building, but it was closed. So we okay. tried the church next and we knew he'd be there because it was, it was probably two hours before service, three hours before service. So we knew he'd be yeah, before Sunday night started back up. Right. Yeah. So what what was that like walking in there? How did he greet you? Yeah, I mean, I've met Wilkerson before, so he pastored in California, um, and mm-hmm. so you know we we connected and we knew like he didn't remember me, but we knew we knew of him, and and I had met him you know one or two times in California. So um, meeting was just. I mean, first is going to the church and sitting in there felt weird. And, you know, and then people meeting you and just all being back in that world is just so weird. Like just the faux friendliness and like the, how are you doing? But they're really just checking to see why you're there kind of thing. Um, You know, it was just kind of odd. Wilkerson, I mean, meeting him again and sitting down like, my mindset going in was just, oh, this is a waste of time because I've had this conversation before. I've had phone calls like this before. Like, it's not going to give us any results. And so I sat down really just as a support to Kathy and wasn't planning on saying anything. And that's what I told her. Um, you know, she basically broke down, hey, here's who I am. Here's my relation to the ministry. Here's why I wanted to meet with you. And, um, you know, Wilkerson just kind of sat and listened and was very soft-spoken. And <laughs> it was really funny because like one of the first things he said was, I'm so sorry, sweet girl. And I was like, oh God, yep. like, mm-hmm. I'm not, That's like Wilkie. I cannot do this. Um, you know, so we started talking. He was just basically the quiet, listening Wilkerson. And then as the conversation went on, probably about five to 10 minutes in, I started talking because there was just too much I wanted to say, too many things that were being said that I wanted to add things to like it. And uh, it began kind of a back and forth conversation among the three of us. Um, Yeah, it was it was just very odd, just because it was a world that I'm so far out of at this point. But, you know, as it started going, it just kind of, I just felt that that kind of frustrated, anxious, kind of yeah frustration just kind of bubbling up through the conversation of man they're really not going to do anything i just cannot believe that this is still a conversation that needs to be had um but i can i can answer more specifics on what we talked about but that's kind of the the feeling i had going into it well his talking points um so we're looking at in this episode two times that he talked specifically about the protests one was the wednesday night before the protests were going to happen. And then he spoke about it again on the day of the protests in the Sunday morning church service. And his talking points both times were 
this ministry has been a long, around for a long time and there have been people that have done bad things and that shouldn't have happened. But his his talking point is kind of, well, with this many people over this many years, what do you expect? Some bad things are going to happen and it's not my fault. Right. Was that his vibe in your conversation as well? Yeah. So I'll say what I said at the end of the meeting with Wilkerson, because it really paints how I felt through the entire discussion and how I feel about Wilkerson in general. And basically the last thing that I said to Wilkerson in the meeting was you're using ignorance as a shield. And I feel that's what Wilkerson kind of does is he, you know, whether it's giving his statement where he says, Hey, we've been around for whatever it is, 13 decades. And of course some things have happened. um, And I can't, I can only answer for what's happened since I've been here. You know, those sorts of conversations and talking points happen all the time. And I think that that idea of, well, I don't know what happened because I wasn't there. It's just not a sufficient answer to the type of organization that you're leading and, and the amount of hurt that's happened over the years. Well, it's not because the people affected are still living, right. are still exactly. being affected by what has happened in your church. The victims of David Hiles are only women in their 50s. Yeah. That is younger than a lot of our mother's age. Right. Uh, Jack Scott's victim is younger than I am Hmm. in her 20s now. These are the, the people that are most materially affected by the crimes that have taken place at that church are he he is framing it as if they're dead and gone, you know, or hundred year old grandmas. Um, but that's not accurate. The harm is the crime may have taken place before his pastorate, but the harm is continuing in his pastorate. And Eddie Lapina, who has been a tool of that harm in the Hiles era, in the Dave Hiles era, and in the Jack Scott era, is still on staff. And that, and that's that's really the thing I wanted him to just acknowledge was and, and that's why I wanted to say what I said at the end because that's kind of what I was feeling inside the whole conversation is you're using ignorance as a shield. And I've said this quite a few times to people, like when they ask, Do you think Wilkerson's better? Like to me, Hiles and I mean all the Hileses, but the Jack Hiles, the Jack Scops, those huge bombastic they're these explosions that are hard to ignore. Like there's clear things that are so obviously damaging and hurtful. To me, Wilkerson is really just a gas leak. Like he's so quiet. It's so unnoticeable. He's so like, he's like a politician. Like you meet him. He's so friendly. He's got a gumball machine in his office and it's a, you know, come have a seat. It's like, but the abuse that's so protected by him and his regime is like, it's still just as dangerous and maybe even more so because he knows how to put on that friendly face. That's hard to dislike. And so that's, that for me is really the, it's just, it's, it's why it's a hard conversation to have because he's not going to give you those, those sound bites that are easy to point out the way that a scop does, you know? I am. I'm so glad you did it. Uh, that mm-hmm. is something I'm not a hundred percent sure I would have had the guts to do. <laughs> that all goes to Kathy because when I tell you, you and Kathy, yes. I mean, I felt 
I was telling her, like, we're sitting there. I was like, why are we doing this? Are you sure you want to do this? This is such a waste of time. And she's like, no, he said he'll meet with us privately and not publicly. So I'm going to call his bluff. Like, I'm going to meet with him. And, you know, and, and hearing her, I mean, for the first five, six minutes of the conversation, especially, like, she just so clearly laid out what the issues were, what happened, where things had happened in, you know, conjunction with the church. Like, she really just was so clear and thoughtful and well-spoken for something that was so impromptu. And, um, you know, and, and seeing her, you know, having to really plead her case again to another pastor to, hey, can you care about this? It was, I mean, you can't sit there and listen to that without getting, you know, passionate about what's going on and getting frustrated. And you have to start saying the things that are going through your mind. And, um, you know, yeah. And then so going into the conversation, like, my my whole point of everything I said in the conversation was basically he would call, you know, ignorance to his defense. And then I would try to lay out the fact to where he has the information. He can't deny it now. And Kathy did a really good job of doing that as well, you know, with, hey, you're saying you don't know this, but we're telling you this. <laughs> so now what do you do with this information? Did he ask or did you offer any specific actions that he could take? The first one that would come to my mind is fully investigate, at at least fully investigate Dave Hiles and his time as a staff member. But did he ask for any specific actions that you recommend or did you uh, recommend any specific actions? Yeah, so that was kind of his first line of question was just, what do you want to see happen? And for Kathy, and I don't want to speak for Kathy, I just don't want, I also don't want to leave her out of this conversation because, like I said, she's the reason we had the meeting. Um, what Kathy really called for was specificity and transparency. So, you know, her, her push, and, and she mentioned, I believe she mentioned it, um, if not, I, I know I mentioned it. It came up in the conversation, um, but she mentioned that the apology video for a long-haired creationist coming in and the mm-hmm. amount of specificity he gave toward that. And why isn't there that same level of specificity for people whose names are still on buildings? You know, And so mm-hmm. she really pushed for him to be just to name things by name, to specifically address people like a Bruce Goddard, who was a poster child at Hiles for so long. But again, Wilkerson's response to that stuff was, well, Goddard hasn't been here since I've been here. Like, and, you know, and then Kathy said, well, that's because he, you know, he's upset. He didn't get the job that you had, like all that sort of back and forth of just, what do you want me to do about it? It wasn't me. And my conversation point, that's really when I first started talking was, he was really pushing back on, hey, we're worshiping the, like we're um, responsible for the past. And so I said, the names on the buildings outside while we we're protesting all have the names of people from the past. Your bookstore has books from people who've done severe harm. They literally have a book in their bookstore about miracles in Garland, Texas, which is the church where David Hiles, you know, Ugh. slept with so many people within the church and did you know, irreparable damage there. And I told him, I listed those things out and just said, with the amount of energy spent worshiping and celebrating the past, 
it feels like you could spend a little bit of that energy calling out some of the things that are harmful in the past. And this is one of my favorite things in the conversation because Wilkerson looked at me and said, I, I don't think we spend all our time celebrating the past. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there. That's the funniest chairs. joke I've ever heard John Wilkerson tell. This is even funnier because I'm sitting in the two chairs in the office. We're sitting at him in his chair and his desk. He's telling me that. I'm looking him in the eyes. Right behind him is a picture of, um, I believe it was John R. Rice, uh, <laughs> right behind his head framed on the wall. And all I could think was like, this is so ironic that I'm staring at you and right behind you is literally a leader from the past that you have framed in your office. You know, as we're sitting in a building that bears, you know, as we walked in has pictures of every pastor the church has had, except for one, um, every pastor the church has had up till that point. You know, it was just such a cognitive dissonance moment of like, yeah, you guys definitely celebrate the past. Like, you can also talk about the bad as well. I mean, that's the entire reason why people, why the IFB exists is because the old way is the best way. Right. Exactly. Did you get the impression that Wilkerson had actually seen the documentary or do you think that he didn't watch it? I don't know. I was trying, and um, Kathy actually recommended to him at the end. She said, I think you should watch Let Us Pray. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if Wilkerson's seen it or not. I mean, we didn't ask him. I don't, I don't think he would say if he did. I think, again, his ignorance is his best defense. So I think it's, you know, so I don't know. I don't know if he's seen it. I don't know if he's watched it. Um, you know, he didn't give any, you know, insinuation either way. Um, he kept just going back to, oh, I just don't know these things. So, so let me just break down a couple of those because I think this is kind of the, the, part that was frustrating is he constantly kept saying, oh, I don't know that, or I didn't hear that, or I didn't know that. So I addressed with him, I said, you're saying that you're different, you're separated from the people in the past, you've really changed things, but you were recently on David Baker's podcast, who helps David Hiles with his restoration ministry. Then I said, you're literally a few episodes apart from David Hiles. That doesn't look like you've cut ties with him. And Wilkerson said, I didn't know David Baker was partnered with David Hiles. Maybe I should have done some more research into that. And I mentioned they're doing pastor school in, I think it's called Servants Conference now, but they're doing pastor school in March. And so me and Kathy were telling him, two of your speakers are Jack Treber and David Gibbs. And so I said, David Gibbs, there's video footage on YouTube you could easily find of David Gibbs holding um, conferences supporting pedophiles and abusers. You can see that. You can see that footage online. So that information's out there. And he will say, I didn't know that, but he won't come and say, I didn't know that. And if I had known that, I would have done X. Well, that was the next piece that was interesting is I mentioned Treber and I said, Jack Treber's brother-in-law had a child with a girl who was underage at North Valley Baptist Church. And Jack Treber covered that up. And his brother-in-law eventually came back to the church where he is now and was teaching a Sunday school class just a couple years ago. I, and I told him, I said, you're saying you don't know, but if you found out that was true, we're telling you the information. If you understood that Jack Treber did do those things or David Gibbs did those things, we would hope that you would stand in the pulpit and say, hey, we invited 
Jack Traber to come speak. I was unaware of this. Two people came into my office and shared the information. We looked into it, and he will not be speaking at this conference. That to me is a bare minimum. Like, and we said in the meeting, the bar is low. Like, we're not asking for a lot, and we're not expecting a lot, but we also know that it's probably not going to happen, you know, based on past experiences. And so he just kept going back and forth on, you know, I don't know that stuff. And then we got into the conversation of faith and religion. And, you know, that's where I felt like it kind of got off the rails to me of just, okay, this is really not going to go anywhere. Did you believe that he was speaking in good faith when he, or was it like a weaponized incompetence kind of situation? No, I don't believe it was good faith. I, I, I know people are going to get mad about this. There's even people who left the IFB who still hold Wilkerson on this pedestal. Um, look, Wilkerson is a friendly guy. But again, the people he surrounds himself with, and, and this is like a Baptist thing, like, like separate yourselves, like these doctrines of separation. It's like, okay, the bare minimum seems like we can all agree to separate from Gibson Treber. Like that seems like a bare minimum thing. You know, I, I think for Wilkerson, he's very comfortable. Like he has no reason to rock the boat where he's at. I just, I don't trust him. I don't, I don't think it was in good faith. And I feel like, especially with me, I feel like he was looking as quickly as possible to discredit my motivation for being there. And that really came out when, you know, Kathy, who is still a believer, you know, she started crying in the office and said, you know, she said, it makes me, it, it breaks my heart that people like Eric, you know, and she mentioned some other names, people like Eric don't even want to have, a, you know, any kind of faith or religious belief because of their experiences in the church, you know? And I, I mean, that was a, it's a touching thing to me that that's, that she was concerned about that. But Wilkerson looked to me after she said that, and said, well, Eric, let me ask you then, why do you care about these things? Or why are you having this meeting? What do you want to happen if you're not even a Christian? Mm. And to me, that was like this moment of, dude, you've so lost the plot. If you think that I need to adhere to your religious beliefs to care about people literally getting raped on your campus, like in the churches that are being planted by this ministry, like yeah. if you think that has any bearing on this conversation, you're you're lost. Turns out a lot of um, atheists and agnostics and other assorted not believers uh, care about women and their bodily autonomy. <laughs> right. Maybe even kind more. of a lot. And, and, you know, and I feel like my level of empathy and concern has grown the further I've removed myself from the teachings of this particular religious group. You know, like I, I just... Again, it was one of those things like that's when he said that it was this moment for me of, okay, so if I'm not part of your club, my opinion's irrelevant. Even if we're talking about something that should be the most bipartisan, basic, obvious thing ever, you know, and, and I told him in response to that, just to give my answer, like I literally told him, I'm never going to step foot in an IFB church again. And I said, I'll probably never step foot in a church again as a member ever. But I told him, there are people that are going to. There's people that are filling the auditorium underneath us right now. I don't have to agree with them to say, I want to see those people safe. And they're not safe in the environment that we're in right now. 
And that to me, again, is such a common sense thing. Like, hey, even if I'm not religious, I don't want religious people to be raped and hurt. Like, and I want the people who have been to be able to get actual healing and to be, you know, it, it's it's true. Like we we talk about like, hey, you're broad brushing IFB churches, you're broad brushing all IFB people as being bad. It's like, no, there were a lot of good people. And those people are now survivors. And now we're picking up the pieces that the church created. Like it, it's just it's just so frustrating. And and it's where I literally felt like talking to Wilkerson was like talking to a wall. It's like, yeah, he's going to smile at you. He's going to say he's concerned. He's going to say, I'm sorry, sweet girl, that happened. I'm sorry for this. But at the end of the day, he's going to take this the platform and not address anything that we talked about. He's not going to address any facts. He's not going to research. Like Things are going to go business as usual because why not? I feel like Wilkerson missed his calling as like world tour of poker guy. <laughs> <clears throat> Because he's got such a, he is so hard to read, and it's so much harder like to be on this side uh, with him on the other side than it was with Jack Scott. Because, right. well, <laughs> well, you almost feel like, you know, I know especially when Wilkerson first took over, like everybody was like, "Oh, that's exactly what they need." I'm sure you heard that a billion times. Like I, I heard it from I was everybody. There. You know, yeah. Well, then, yeah, you definitely heard it. Um, but like everybody I knew in California that knew him, which was a lot of people, they would all say, you know, man, that's exactly what they need. And like, I kind of bought into that for a minute. And like, he is so friendly where like, when you disagree with him on something, you're sitting there going like, am I a dick? Because he seems so nice, you know, until you get far enough down, like we're a decade into him being there with nothing changing. Like you start realizing it's a false front. Like it's a political face more than it is a genuine you know, I, is he a nice person? I mean, yes. <laughs> is he, you know, you know, like, are there things that he does that are not evil? Yes. But like, again, if it's that conversation, like, when do you stop being a good person? Like how, how many bad people do you have to surround yourself by? How many bad systems do you have to protect before you're one of the bad guys and not one of the good guys? So what do you think it would take for him or if not him for first baptist church and the ifb in general to actually make changes (laughs) uh i think for i mean for him i i mean again it goes to you have the information so like that's where i don't have a lot of grace for these guys is when i got the information when it came to like actual abuse the decision was easy and my thing is if you can get confronted with the information and not make the right choice. I just don't know what else it's going to take. Like, it's not like, it's not like it's a numbers game of like, here, once you find about this many cases, you'll start taking action. I mean, what, once you have the information of like, Hey, someone was brutally wounded by this ministry or by someone in it. And that does nothing to you and means nothing to you. I feel like you're kind of a lost cause. Um, when it comes to the ministry and organization itself, I mean, it just goes back to radical transparency. Like, you know, you mentioned some of the things that, um, did he ask for any suggestions on what to improve on the campus? And like, you know, I meant, you know, I mentioned like one, I don't know even where to start with a place like this, because I said, there's a statue of Jack Hiles still out there. There's books in the bookstore. Like there's a lot that needs to come down. But I mentioned, you know, when Grace did the Bob Jones study, 
and found tons of abuse. Like they recommended things like putting a memorial um, that honors past victims and is open about the past there. Um, you know, so I mentioned that I said it would be meaningful to see you acknowledge in a way and do some kind of a tribute to people who've been harmed in the past and making known that that's not the way things operate now. You know, I think, I think the baseline thing though, beyond services and memorials and statues and, you know, statements is just transparency. Like I think literally seeing someone like Wilkerson stand up and say, Hey, we saw what happened with Jack Treber once the cameras were off and the things that he said about Cameron Giovanelli. We know what happened with his brother-in-law. You know, David Gibbs has a long history of, you know, supporting people like, you know, Jack Kyle's to our ministry and, and all of the abusers that he helped defend in this ministry. Like to see him name some of those names and, and just say, Hey, I was not responsible for this because I was not the pastor then, but I'm the pastor now. And I want to take ownership of the church and its legacy, good and bad and make change for the future. Like that would be so meaningful to so many survivors. It will Will any of us ever go and like join as members? Probably not. But again, it could change the future for people who are there and for new people in the community that are going to attend. And it would give them so much more credibility than sweeping this stuff under the rug continuously because they show, hey, we don't just confront, you know, long hair and Bible translations. Like Mm -hmm. we go hard in the paint for abuse victims. I think that would be a huge rebrand for them. And again, the bar is so, so low where, you know, if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. And I don't have much optimism that any of what I just said will ever happen, at least not under Wilkerson. He's kind of made his decision. And I think the more that comes out and the more he platforms guys like Treber and Gibbs and whoever else he brings up, it's just going to keep proving the point that he's no different than past leadership. Yeah. And if you really want to say, well, we don't worship the past, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Exactly. I would like to point out that another speaker for pastor school, oops, I mean, servants conference in March is Tom Williams. And if you've heard early episodes of this podcast, Tom Williams is Red Sox guy. Oh, um, Eric, I'll fill you in. I was 13. I think like 12, 13, 14, very young teen at a pastor school in, you know, mid 2000s of like 2005, six or seven. And I think it was pastor school 2006. And I would have just turned 13. William spoke to a uh, breakout session of all women attending the conference, including teenagers and gave the most sexually explicit sermon I have ever heard far outpacing anything I ever heard from Scob. Mm. The stuff that still bugs me (laughs) that I had to hear this old man say. Is that sermon available anywhere? Oh, I doubt it. I can, uh, I'll I'll send you a link to the episode where I talk about what I remember from it. Yeah, I'd love to listen to it. But it was a women's session, so why would they record that? Right. (laughs) That's true. But anyway, I'm like, I, your objections to Treber and Gibbs are 100% valid and I share them. But every time you say Treber and Gibbs, I just want to make a note that Williams needs to be on that list as well. Sure. Yeah. 
Um, I cannot believe they're letting him talk to people again, much less women. Do you think that there's any amount of external pressure that could come on the IFB or that could come on First Baptist Church of Hammond that could get them to change their practices? Again, do I think they'll actually change practices or do I think they'll get more cunning and quiet about stuff? That's two different things. I, I mean, obviously, like the city itself, I think putting pressure to where, you know, putting pressure on any new permits they want for building, any event permits, like them being allowed to drive buses into different communities. Like there's a lot of that kind of pressure I think might affect things. But again, they're so in good with the city and the state where like that would have to be some radical changes there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think honestly the path forward in a lot of these cases, and I'm speaking to, First Baptist Church to North Valley to many of these organizations, I think honestly, like lawsuits and like financial pressure is probably the best way. Um, which, you know, Wilkerson acknowledged, he said, I've met with a couple different people and then they went and sued the church. And he said, you know, and I'm not angry at them for that, you know, but it's just, it's just like, I think there needs to be a little bit more of that for people who have a civil case to pursue that kind of action. Cause I think going after the assets, going after the, the corporate side of the church is probably the best way to actually get some attention from the ministry itself. But again, are they going to change or are they just going to get more quiet? I think they've kind of shown what they do. They get more quiet. They're going to hire somebody soft-spoken. They're going to put on a friendly face and they're going to keep going business as usual. I agree. Um, hitting them in the money is what hurts for, right. for first Baptist church of Hammond. And always has been. Do you think that uh, Wilkerson's caginess and his unwillingness to admit to any level of culpability, um, other than say, well, we know stuff happened in the past very generally, do you think that that comes from a fear of a lawsuit, a fear of um, admission of guilt, possibly being used litigiously? I mean, sure. I, I mean, I, I absolutely think lawyers looked over the statement he gave for the protest, you know, and if I'm wrong on that, I'm wrong on that. I'm just saying that's my, uh, that's my alleged feeling about it, listening to the letter. You know, yeah, I think that's definitely it. But I think it's one of the things where it goes back to, you know, I'm not a religious person now, but I do think I'm a moral person. And I think when you have the conversation of what is legally beneficial to me versus what is the moral thing to do. I would hope that a so-called man of God would choose the moral thing to do above being concerned about a lawsuit or above being concerned. You know what? If if someone was victimized at the ministry, they deserve to get paid out. That's my perspective. And I would think that he should sit there and going, how can we make this right? Whatever that means, whatever the legal system decides, we're willing and able to do because we're a multi-million dollar ministry. I think we can take care of these people who've had their lives, you know, irreparably damaged by people who whose names are connected to this very building that I'm leading right now. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think he has a moral responsibility, regardless of what the lawyers warn him about, to actually open his mouth and say, "Hey, I'm so sorry this happened. This should not happen in a ministry that claims the name of God." I agree. Um, we're running out of time for today. Thank you so much, Eric, for 
joining us um, and for sharing your non-experience having a non-conversation with non-apology John Wilkerson. Yes, I'm very glad I got to share. Um, Yeah, it it is one of those things, like I know when you guys reached out, you're like, are you going to talk about it? I was like, well, there's not much to talk about to where, you know, I I think for me, I'll probably talk a lot more about it when it gets closer to pastor school, because I think then it's going to be, hey, I told Wilkerson about these things. Here's all the things that these people who are speaking have done that he is aware of, and they're still speaking. What's the deal with that? But I think this is a good uh, foundation to start having that conversation. Well, we will keep on having that conversation and I'll see you in March. Yeah, sounds good. I'll see you then. All right. Yeah. Once again, thank, we want to thank Eric for coming on. When Eric told us that he had spoken to Wilkerson, had a 45-minute conversation with Wilkerson, do you, I mean, do you remember your reaction to it, Sadie? He, he texted me, like, getting out of Wilkerson's office, like, hey, I just got out of a 45-minute meeting with Wilkerson. And I, was, I texted back, what you did? What, what did he say? Tell me everything. I was like, tell me. Give me the deets. What like what? What do I need to know? And then he didn't respond to anything for like days and days and days. But as you can, because that's you know, how Eric talks. I mean, that's true. Dude, dude's got a lot on his plate. But like, as you can, Wilkerson didn't really say anything substantive. Um, yeah, there was <laughs> so kind of nothing like, to talk about. But we dragged him on our show because I think um, having a conversation at all is noteworthy. Even if nothing was really said, because it's Wilkerson. And even if nothing gets said, that's still something that you can discern information from. And I also still, I I feel that my thought that that line, some of them are true victims and some of them maybe serve a little bit of a different purpose. I feel validated in my theory that that was a shot at Eric after hearing what Wilkerson had to say about, oh, well, you're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're going to go to break and then Sadie is going to, well, there's another pastor who is a uh, man who had some things to say that we, I think we like these things even less than we like what Wilkerson had to say. Let's go, go to break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. All right, we are back from our break. Sadie, uh, you've been watching some other IFB pastors respond to let us pray. Yeah. And there's one in particular that I want to address. Um, This is Pastor Phil Hudson. He released a sermon online that was entitled In Defense of IFB Churches. He is the pastor of Union Baptist Temple, which is in Union, Missouri. The reason I want to talk about this is that it's a church I'm familiar with, and he's speaking about people that I'm familiar with, um, and it feels a little personal. This church is driving distance from the church that I grew up in, in the St. Louis area. I have attended youth conferences at this church. Pastor Hudson references his daughter, Amanda, heavily in this sermon. Amanda was my RA in college, so it's not like we were besties because she was my dorm soup, but I knew her. And I knew other kids who grew up in that church and spent time in that church. The video, so in the video, he talks about, well, I know this is going to get out on the internet and I'm not ashamed of anything I have to say. Of course, the video has since been taken down. R.I.P. But (laughs) he's not ashamed of anything he has to say. (laughs) Oh, man. What what happened? Did they get... uh reported too many times to youtube i don't know maybe uh no it was on facebook maybe wilkerson called him up and said this is bad pr for us (laughs) i don't (laughs) i don't know i don't know um but i was able to take some notes from the video before it was taken down and we have some clips courtesy of bad sermons on twitter so speaking about CSA in the IFB. Hudson said that, quote, several such incidents had happened in the church that he pastors. He said about both his church and First Baptist Church of Hammond that, quote, these things happen. Do they? Do do they? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, well, I, I mean, yes, humans hurt and abuse other humans. But I'm familiar with this church. I have been for many years. This church is not small by IFB standards, but as far as I'm aware, they've never run more than about 200 people or so. And I feel that these things happen and several incidents in a church of that size is pretty terrifying. It's not about whether or not abuse happens. It's a. It's more about how do you respond to it when it does, because I don't want to say that it's inevitable because there's things that you can do to prevent it. There's ways that you can right. be proactive in preventing that from happening and protecting people and setting out policies that make sure at least try to minimize that possibility. That's that's very much where I fall. Um, the more I read and study, there isn't really such thing as an abuse-free group of humans. Any place that there is a group of human beings, there is opportunity for some form or some kind of bu- of abuse, not necessarily only child sexual abuse, but spiritual abuse and religious abuse or emotional abuse and mental abuse. And there is always the opportunity when there is a group of human beings. 
even talking about in a job environment or in a social club or in a social group. There is, it, there is always that, the ability for abuse to occur. When we talk about people that become abusers, I really think we're talking about person, there are, there are some personalities who are more likely to have life experiences that would lead them to become abusive or worldviews that would lead them to become abusive, but that's not the only ingredient. There are life experiences. There is the question of opportunity. There is the question of whether that person chooses to be a abusive person or to not be an abusive person. There are many factors that go into an incident of abuse happening. And what a church can do is you can't control the people who join your church, aside from if you choose to bar people who have been convicted of certain crimes, um, which I don't think is always a bad idea. But you you can't control the personality types that walk into your church. You can't control the past experiences of people that walk into your church. And you don't know by looking at a person if put in a situation they would choose to abuse or choose not to. What you can do is control opportunity. You can provide accountability and you can reduce the opportunities that any person would have to abuse another person. And that's what churches, I believe, are morally obligated to do. And you can also create an environment where if somebody has been abused, they feel like if they come forward, then they will be taken seriously. Yes. And that in itself can be a deterrent to abuse occurring. If people who might have the opportunity to abuse know that a victim will be taken seriously and consequences will be real and quick and just, um, that can be a deterrent as well. So Hudson is going to talk about some of the ways that he believes his church is preventing abuse. He says if there has been any sexual abuse in the church or by a church member, don't call him first, call the police. Um, So he gives the disclaimer that he has to. And then he goes on to talk about some rules that his church has put in place for child molesters who still wanted to attend church there. Was this rule, no, you can't, sorry, you're not allowed? No, it was not. Oh, that's upsetting. It was, you can't go in the basement where the children's church is. Mm. Which doesn't seem like enough. <sighs> there are kids outside of the basement, though. Does does he say that they aren't going to have be allowed to have volunteer opportunities? Does he say that they're not going to... Yeah. I think he did say something about limited volunteer opportunities, and there's only... They're not allowed to use the public bathrooms. There's a single stall bathroom that's the only one that they would be allowed to use, which is something um, I would argue that it's not enough. This Uh. is where it gets bad. (laughs) Phil Hudson says about this hypothetical sex offender, quote, it's not about him. It's about the reputation of the church. I would maybe argue that that's not what it's about. Think he said the quiet part out loud there. Yeah, it maybe it should be about the safety of the church's children. So this <sighs> he switched gears to talk about First Baptist Church of Hammond. Uh, he spent a while bragging on First Baptist Church of Hammond and talking about how they have had so few incidents of child sex, sexual abuse 
over such a long history with so many people, isn't it amazing how few incidents they've had? It's really only one every couple of years. One every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, then he starts talking about how his daughter, Amanda, was seriously sexually assaulted at Hiles Anderson. And he's told us this story. He's not referred to what happened but just said that she was seriously sexually assaulted. And he starts to paint himself as this good guy. He encouraged her to report it to the college staff. He makes it seem like he wasn't particularly satisfied with the outcome of her report to college staff. Although out of the other side of his mouth, he's still praising First Baptist Church of Hammond for being a safe place. It seems that the point, this is very confusing. It seems that the point of this story was to tell us that things happen, you know, these things happen, but it's still okay. And that doesn't mean that a place is bad. I seem, I think that what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, if I'm okay with these results for my child, then you should be for yours and there's nothing to worry about. Yes. That is, I feel like he is saying, my property was damaged, but I didn't cause a big fuss because it wasn't that bad. Because this is something that happened before Amanda was married. I mean, if it's if he's talking about his daughter, then literally property. Yeah. Is. This is, and this is my fundy analysis. I don't know for sure what, if anything, was going on in this man's head because he's also a flat earther. So mm. who knows what's going on in there? Does he want to debate Greg Locke? Uh, Probably there's something about the earth being tilted at 666.6 degrees and that's proof that NASA is satanic one of his uh, proofs for flat earthism is that um that all the planets are named after Roman gods and that's proof that planets are satanic because NASA he seems to imply that NASA named the planets that nobody tell him that planets have been named for a while I swear he's the one that's going to say, you know, they were right to excommunicate Galileo and put him on house arrest. Only good thing the Catholic Church ever did, amen? Yeah, those cannonballs didn't fall from the Tower of Pisa at the same speed. Galileo lied to you. (laughs) A feather falls faster than a cannonball. (laughs) So this is just my fundy analysis, but I think... Midway through the sermon, he realized that he may have said too much and that he may have unintentionally painted his now married daughter to be some kind of fallen woman. So then he starts talking, it gives us more details about the incident because now he needs to downplay her assault to save face. He starts using words like less than a level four offense. And as far as trigger warning, I am going to describe this assault because it is very, very relevant. I'm sure it was traumatic, incredibly difficult for Amanda. I knew her in college, really sweet girl, very um, just innocent and sweet and kind person. It's heartbreaking for me to hear about it because this is somebody that I care for. But what actually happened is I would describe as minimally physically invasive and happened in a public place and was over quickly. And I'm giving you all of these details because I believe it's relevant to Phil Hudson's sermon. So what happened with this assault? Amanda was working on a bus route. The bus shook. A bunch of people fell over. Sounds like kind of fell over in a pile. 
fell over. And during the chaos, a man or young man on the bus took advantage of the opportunity to grope Amanda inappropriately. Mm. Yeah, that's that's horrible. I'm so sorry that happened. I can tell you in my non-fundy life, if this happened on a city bus, I would be incredibly upset about this. So from her, at the time, Hiles Anderson fundy perspective, and from an outside world perspective, she was more than valid to interpret this as an assault, more than valid to be shaken and upset by what happened. But Phil Hudson is downplaying it. And oh, it's less than a level four. And it was, you know, just barely an assault, barely even, not even something you could legally press charge. This is where I started seeing red because his daughter's assault was a serious sexual assault when he needed to very poorly attempt to make a point about abuse happening in the IFB, but it's okay. And it's only isolated incidents. Um, Then it was a very big deal. But when he needed to save face for himself and his family, 10 minutes later, he switched gears to downplaying and minimizing this event that was clearly traumatic for her and clearly upsetting for her. Now it's not a big deal. For what it's worth, this is the type of thing that I've definitely heard about happening on at, at my secular school that I went to and that the administration didn't take seriously. But that's not a reason why it should be any less of a big deal when it happens in the IFB. This is a situation where, yes, everybody needs to take these things seriously, not, oh, well, they don't take it seriously, so why should we? Exactly. Everybody should take this sort of thing seriously. It was clearly upsetting and traumatic for her. I'm so sorry that that happened to her. I mean, I would like to know if there was any punishment for the perpetrator. Was he just moved to a different bus route to potentially traumatize somebody else? Hudson, I have some quotes from him. He's talking about working with the local sheriff's department and being mandated to take sexual harassment training and sexual assault training through the local sheriff's department, which is scary in and of itself. But here's his quote. In the closet said that in 2017, 72% of sexual harassment charges filed with the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, included allegations of retaliation. In other words, the, the allegation was in retaliation. That's what it was, 72%. That's not what retaliation means. It is absolutely not. What this statistic means is that 72% of people reporting abuse feared being retaliated against or believed they were being retaliated against by the company for which they worked or the person who was abusing them. That is the opposite of what you said it meant. Was he sleeping in class or was he just purposely being misleading? Oh, I, I don't think he's smart enough to purposely mislead on this. <sighs> um, he, co- he goes on to say, the Bible tells me the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb. I'm not saying blame all women. I'm just saying women and men are sinful. Women and men are sinful. The only time women have ever come first in a sentence in the IFB. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, when they're talking about, I mean, Eve was the one, you know, with with the fruit. Adam just did it because Eve told him it was a good idea, you know. Can yeah, um, <laughs> can you play the clip where he's talking about Rachel Peach, the one of crocodile, crocodile tears? Yeah. Okay. Now, as you know, I work for the police department, actually the sheriff's department. 
And so the police have to take, you know, these, these posts, these training all the time. And so I'm privy to that. I can get on their training courses and all that stuff. And so... So I, I took a couple of their courses. One, I was, it was mandated that I take. And in this one, they call it Mac Trust. And, um, and anyway, it has all of the things that police got to do and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I took one of the classes. And it was required because of, sexu you know, because of sexual assault and all that stuff in the, in the workplace. And so in the class, it said that in 2017, 72% of sexual harassment charges filed with the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, included allegations of retaliation. In other words, the allegation was in retaliation. That's what it was. That's, you hear what I'm saying? 72%. The Bible tells me the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb. I'm not saying blame all women. I'm just saying women and men are sinful. Amen. And when you're carnal, you want to, you want to satisfy fleshly appetites. I believe that. Independent Fundamental Baptists all believe that. That's why we're Independent Fundamental Baptists. That's why we're not roots. That's why we don't create an atmosphere. You know, we're dancing and girls get up and they start jiggling like this, you know, in church and singing songs that are sensual songs with breathy words. We don't believe in any of that stuff. We don't believe in creating an appetite of sensu sensuality. We just don't. So one of the girls that cried, oh, she cried on the show. Oh, big crocodile tears. They didn't mean anything to me. And I know this was going to get around on the internet. I'm telling you. It did, I'm going to tell you why. Because my daughter was her dorm supervisor. Uh-huh. Who told me that she bragged about the fact that she was having an affair with one of the assistant pastors. Actually, was a school teacher. Oh, wait a minute here. You're either proud of it or you're ashamed of it. It can't be both of them. Amen. After listening to this motherfucker, <laughs> actually, I'm not going to say that on the podcast. I'm going to say, um, after watching this clip, I don't like this man very much at all. And I have a very poor opinion of him that is even lower than the opinion that I had about him when I found out that he was a flat earther. So I just have to say this for the record, because some people, aka Pastor Phil Hudson, apparently need to hear it. It is not possible for a minor to, quote, have an affair with a school teacher, youth pastor, or assistant pastor. Quote, an affair requires consent, and minors are not capable of giving consent to adults, doubly so when that adult is in a position of power over them. So this is absolutely and unequivocally a lie. Because even if Rachel Peach, that's who he's speaking about here, even if she did, brag about being abused by Victor Montero at some point. And even if she at the time mistakenly believed it was something to brag about, number one, it wouldn't change how I feel about her as a hero, an advocate, and a friend a single bit. Um, because I understand how things can be completely misperceived when you're a minor. And and uh, not, to, not to mention a minor who has been abused. Number two, it wouldn't change the fact that this was in no way consensual. It literally does not matter what Rachel did or did not say a decade ago, bragging, not bragging, whatever. It does not change the facts of what happened here. I did reach out to Rachel for comment on this segment of the episode, and she says that, of course, she did not brag about this at all. Like, the reason why I can't 
wrap my head around the fact that this is something that somebody would brag about. She was at Hiles Anderson. If she was bragging about it, how would she have been allowed to finish out four years at Hiles Anderson? Like, uh, he because he says that his daughter, who was a a dorm supervisor, who is an an RA in the dorms, was the one who told him this. So she would have been able to have a pipeline, like to the authorities, to say, "Hey, look, she's bragging about this sinful behavior and clearly isn't living up to our standards." And we had we talked to Rachel. Rachel wasn't like a goody goody. She wouldn't have had the status to protect her from this kind of punishment. Like you almost got kicked out because somebody started a rumor that you had a three way in a closet and then you got ratted out for a side hug. What would happen to somebody who was bragging about having an affair with an assistant pastor? I can tell you at the very least, they would have been under a gag order from the administration. I Rachel did want to let our listeners know, pull up her message, that she is pursuing legal action against him for defamation because these are lies. Good for her. So that that's what she has to say about it. Yeah, take all his money. <clears throat> take all his money, take his church, take everything he owns. I think what's interesting about this particular allegation is that I've also seen the same allegation thrown around about Scop's victim. I'm not entirely sure where it started, but what I know is that there were Hammond Baptist kids who ended up going to West Coast Baptist College in 2013 and 2014 that were talking about this. They had been told that Scop's victim was running around bragging about her quote-unquote affair with him, that she said she did it on purpose, that she wanted to ruin his ministry. I think it's worth pointing out that this exact line of victim blaming has been used before. And I think it's worth pointing out, of course, that it's completely invalid. It's worth pointing out in both cases, it does not matter if a 16-year-old girl anywhere goes on purpose to attempt to seduce an adult man who is a pastor to purposely try to ruin his ministry or get some kind of clout or ruin his life. It literally does not matter what her intentions are or how hard she tries to seduce him. Because consent is impossible in this situation because she's a minor and he is in a position of authority. And because it is the responsibility of the adult pastor here to make a decision not to rape a child. Period. 100% his responsibility. Tell him to be like Joseph in the Old Testament and flee temptation. I think it's so interesting that whenever a man does something wrong in the IFB, it's, well, it takes two to tango, you know, I mean, she, she must've had a part in it too. Like his, his wife, even if it's, you know, unrelated to that, you know, his wife must also be somewhat to blame. But if a man abuses a child, it's, he was clearly powerless in this situation. Mm-hmm. It's the, you know, the, the whole fascism thing, your enemy is both strong and your enemy is weak at the same time. It seems to me that the, well, she bragged about it thing is just a libelous accusation that can be brought on whether or not it's true just in order to deflect blame and they can just kind of start that as a rumor and run with it i would like to refer these pastors again to the story of joseph in the old testament and also to first corinthians six eighteen in the king james version flee fornication you can just flee uh hudson also went after ruthie in this sermon uh would you hmm. play the clip about Ruthie and trigger warning again for victim blaming. Mm-hmm. In one, now listen to this. I, I, I know what I'm talking about. I know, I know what I'm talking about here. 
One of the girls from Gaylord, there's only three, one of the girls from Gaylord, Michigan, she said she was abused when she was 12 and 13, and Michigan would not prosecute because they said they didn't have enough evidence. So anyway, so the guy quits, and he moves all the way out to the other side of the country, Washington State. Okay? About two or three years later now, she is now 15 years of age. So she gets a call from her alleged uh, abuser and says, um, my wife is about ready to have another baby. Would you come on out and babysit? My question is, why did you go out? Why did you go out? Did the pastor force you to get on that airplane? I don't think so. Or maybe was it your mom or dad that forced you to get on the airplane? Or maybe the allegations were looked into and there was no evidence of it. Everybody tells the story in their best light. You know it's the truth. Because you do as well. Okay? I'm not saying she's, she's telling a falsehood. I'm just saying she's not telling all the truth. That's very possible. I don't like this guy very much. No, I, I am not enjoying this. It is incredible to me that someone could spend their entire life in the IFB, have a daughter in the IFB, have a wife in the IFB, pastor an IFB church with women in the church, and still have no idea what the reality of life is for a woman in the IFB. Like when he asks, why did you go out? That is the answer to that question is so incredibly obvious to anyone who has been there. To anyone who has been a woman or an AFAB person um, socialized as a woman in the IFB. Like we all know the answer to that stupid question. I think it's kind of incredible that he spent his entire life in the IFB and doesn't know the answer. One thing that I've read is that people who are victims of abuse will often seek out similar situations in, in order to kind of normalize it in their mind. Yeah. So there is a very real like psychological phenomenon that would explain that kind of behavior. But he can't get his head around the idea of, oh, well, I'm smart. I'm a logical thinker. And this is what I would do in this situation, which would be run away and not do that. But that's not how the world works. People don't always behave 100% rationally. And I get comments like that. I think this upset me because his words are vile and upsetting. But also, I, um, I get comments like this from non-never-IFB, non-IFB people. You know, well, why did you stay? Why didn't you just run away, run away from home when you were 15? I would think that an IFB pastor would understand why someone wouldn't do that. Also, why, why wouldn't you just run away from home when you're 15 is an insane thing to ask somebody. When you've been taught that the outside world is incredibly dangerous, that everybody out there is out to get you at all times, when you've been taught that if you misbehave or run away, you, if you get caught, you're going to get sent straight to Circle of Hope. When you are in an environment where your parents believe that they have the right to beat you as much as they want, when you have no skills, no applicable high school education, why wouldn't you just run away and strike out on your own? I don't know. Also, running away from home, even if you're not taught that, even if you do have applicable skills when you're a teenager is still a ludicrously dangerous thing to do. 
the risk of human trafficking if you're somebody in that situation is astronomical. Somebody asking, oh, well, why wouldn't you just run away from home? That's such a stupid f-ing question. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I get it all the time. Like, Ugh. all the time, dude. All the time. People want to ask that question because they want to think that they're smart enough that it couldn't happen to them. They want to think, yep. oh, well, this is what I would have done in that situation. I'm smarter than this. I'm better than this. It couldn't happen to me because I'm too smart. It's like the same reason why people make fun of homeless people. It's because mm-hmm. they want to think, oh, that could never happen to me. That guy must have done something wrong that I would never do. And so that could never, ever, ever be me. Yep, because the reality of experiencing it is not something they would ever want to face, and it's a mental protection for themselves. And they don't want to admit to themselves that they are one or two or three or four or five or six bad things in their life happening away from being a person in that position. Yeah. <sighs> so I have, I have a bonus quote from oh God. Pastor Hudson and um this one is really extra bad. I don't know. If you want to skip it, maybe skip it. I don't know. It just I God. while I'm here, you know, while I'm here. <laughs> Sock it to me. You want to play that clip, that last clip? Okay. Are you with me? I'm I'm almost done. So, we have gotten away from the Bible so much that these waters have been muddied so much. The world is so screwed. Listen to this now. A prostitute, a prostitute can claim that she was raped by the one that paid her for her services. Because any time through the whole thing, according to the law, when she says no further, he's got to stop. I feel that you understand, that ain't going to happen. Once you turn him on, you ain't going to turn him off just like that. Come on now, somebody stay with me, will you? I'm telling you, a prostitute can solicit prostitution, and then when they get into the act, she can say, stop. And if he doesn't stop, she can say, he raped me, and then have her, um, you know, have him, uh, you know, charged for sexual assault. I'm telling you, that's the truth. Okay? A wife can claim that she's raped by her husband. I, I kid you not. That's how screwed up this is. Okay? It's so bad that sexual advances can be considered sexual assault. The moment that she decides that he has to stop. Uh, I feel like I'm a worse person for having heard that clip. Mm-hmm. And for having introduced so many people to... <laughs> so, number one, tell me you don't understand how criminalized sex work works without telling me. Hmm. Because holy cow, no, nobody is, no, that's not remotely how that works. Uh, and also, um, yeah, marital rape is cool and fine, y'all. The thing that I got from this quote is that he, I feel like he's kind of telling on himself here. He's like, she can just say stop right when you're in the middle and you've got to stop. It's like, yeah, if somebody says stop, you like, yeah. That's how it works. Yeah. Like, the, like I, f- I feel like he's really telling on himself here. He's like, we've all done this, guys. Am I right? You know what I'm talking about. This guy knows what I'm talking about. So, 
Anyway, I <sighs> am. I shouldn't be surprised. I should not be surprised that an IFB pastor is willing to completely throw his relationship with his wife under the bus to make an unrelated point. And his daughter. And the way he sold his daughter out to villainize other women. He is using his wife and daughter as tools to further oppress women that he doesn't even know because they said the truth and he didn't like it. And they're a threat to his station and they're a threat to mm-hmm. the institution that he the institution that gives him power yeah and it it's you know there are mm. many many ifb pastors putting out bs statements i couldn't possibly do an episode on every single one of them i chose this guy um because he made me mad and because he went after people that i'm becoming friends with and and you know because what he said was awful and gross and he's speaking about people that I know and care about. But I also think this one in particular really illustrates the IFB view of women in a, a very particular way. So I wanted to play it for people, not just because I hate it so much, but I think it's instructive the way that he would use his wife and his daughter's lives, their stories to make this point as if his wife and his daughter were nothing more than inanimate tools or vague hypotheticals. Well, anything in service of the ministry. This isn't even his f***ing ministry, you know? Yeah. This is some church, and First Baptist Church of Hammond does not give a sh about you if you run 200 people in your church. They do not care unless you have 5,000 people or close to it. <sighs> it, is, it is interesting. And you know, my cynicism is showing because of my experiences in, in my church and what I saw my dad go through at the hands of First Baptist Church. It is, it, it is really interesting to see what a pastor who is not related to this whole conflict will do to defend the raggedy worn out name of Jack Hiles and First Baptist Church of Hammond. I also think that it's good to have this example because we have from Wilkerson the very boilerplate milk toast abuse is bad and we don't like it and we think that people shouldn't do it and they should if you've been abused tell the police. We want these people to get help. We want to treat them with the love of Jesus, which is like ugh, not great, but also just like it's offensive in its inoffensiveness and also mm-hmm. it's offensive in its unwillingness to actually address the real problems. And then you've got this, shit, which is kind of the other extreme, just deliberately being nasty and saying, I'm not saying that they're all liars, but they're all fucking liars and you like and so are all women and so are all women they're all harlots and and except uh, for my daughter who's not a liar she's just kind of hysterical oh is she is she funny <laughs> oh yeah absolutely but but i think that's not the way that hudson would say hysterical i think he means the crazy kind the, i'm sorry that that happened to her Ugh. oh yeah absolutely it i i 
um, I don't want to be over dramatic or make it about me, but I I cried when I heard that story because I like her as a person. I've not spoken to her in a really long time, but my memories of her are overwhelmingly positive, and it is sad to hear about something like that happening to someone. And it's also shitty just to hear that kind of dragged up, which I'm sure was a painful moment to yeah. be dragged up to to just illustrate a point almost as like a throwaway, like your experiences don't mean anything unless they can be used to the utility of this thing that I'm protecting. Yeah. And then now we have to consider, well, we're dragging it up again. And is that is the is the lesson from this worth us further publicizing this story? But I wouldn't just, you know, tell this story on the podcast to make people mad or to hurt somebody if I thought, you know, to to drag things up or to hurt somebody. And I wouldn't just play this nasty man's nasty sermon clips on the podcast just to make you mad, because I think our listeners are angry enough. I think our listeners are on the same page as me, um, where there is always righteous anger available for this kind of. But. I think this is worth learning from, and I hope that I was right about that. I think that you are right about that, and I hope that I am right about the fact that this is just getting started, that we're only seeing the beginning of the snowball starting to roll down the hill, and by the time it gets to the bottom, it's going to create seismic change. No, I still believe that... I'll see Hiles Anderson close in my lifetime. I want to say thank you to once again to Eric for coming on the show and uh, talking about that conversation that he had with Wilkerson. Incredible that he had that conversation. Uh, I want to say again, a thank you to everybody who appeared in the documentary and a thank you to everybody who's been speaking out and telling their stories about the, what they've gone through as part of the IFB. Really things are just getting started and that one quote from Kathy that, you know, just speaks to us so deeply, that quote, um, it's almost like every time you speak out, you're grabbing the hand of someone who needs to come for- forward. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, this has been the Leaving Eden Podcast. Uh, you can follow us on socials uh, at Leaving Eden Podcast on Facebook and Instagram um, and TikTok. Uh, you can follow me at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. I decided to change my way.